There's our Acharya Puja, the uh, day of, well, one of the days in which we can recollect the teaching, practice, example of Lumpur Cha. It's always good to bear in mind uh, in a living example um, uh, so we lived out mm. so we're living for the ending of the asava the outflows these compulsive reflex tendencies that rush out make the chitta busy intense burdened uh, scattered proliferating never quiet never at rest cramped narrow obsessive mm. the asava this is the asava of sensuality mind glued fixated repelled disgusted by sense contact so much so it's always weaving and ducking fixating and you know more of this less of that heat cold want this don't want that such a transitory quality as that something you have so little control over what touches the senses and get so agitated about that so we're you know incarcerating ourselves and buildings and things to make sure we don't get unpleasant sense contact <laughs> it still gets in you know, you have cushions and zephyrs and, you know, kinds of things to take away the pain. Still gets in. <laughs> yeah. mm. Can you build a wall hard enough, big enough, tall enough, strong enough to keep it out? Nope. But there's a way out. Yeah. When the jitter doesn't go out to sense contact, doesn't evolve itself. And this is a practice worth undertaking. And practice exemplified by Lumpur Chah, lived a very austere life, and sometimes extremely uh, challenging in terms of physical endurance. Uh, not too out of some kind of macho idealism, but just to really, you know, stop getting phased by something you can't have say over. You can't have, you can't say whether sensations can be pleasant or unpleasant. What you can have some say over is whether you rush out to them and get agitated by them. There's a big standard, you know, but, uh, in testing oneself with that. So the monasteries are, you know, actually they're not that rough, but uh, 
you know, nowadays even just to be half an hour without a something music playing or an iPhone is considered <laughs> asceticism. <laughs> so they keep pumping the pleasure in or the gratification in, even that. Is. So just to spend an hour a night, a day with just sit quietly, walk. No. Still, what we're doing, and then really try to live lean, not get too much padding. Mm. So even now, even even these days, you know, the Wat Pong is the monastery of Ajahn Chah is quite well supported. It's still a winter time; it gets very cold. You know, it gets down to twelve degrees, which is pretty cold if you only have a lightweight cotton robe on. And then Ajahn's begging them to go and sleep on the ground. The Poliam. Have a Wapapong, the abbot of the place, go and sleep on, the, on a bit of straw on the ground just to, you know, stay fit, keep your attitudes right. And it's very much, you know, it's kind of really encouraging us all to have that sense of, you know, not trying to be punitive or ascetic for its own sake, just to keep recognizing this one, sense contact, the outflow to it. You know, it's something you can do something about, but you can't do something about sense contact being unpleasant. <laughs> You can just find a way. And this is, of course, the incredible um, teaching and realization of the Buddha and the great beings, completely lost to the average person, is that there is a space that the chitta can withdraw to. It's comfortable, spacious, unconditioned, when stuff doesn't flow. And to do that, you prepare to take on some challenging and take a few bits of bruising and struggle because this is the way out. Yeah, like someone who's, you know, in the sea of samsara, you see a bit of driftwood floating by and it's got rough splinters on it. You grab hold of it when it's got rough splinters or not. <laughs> and if you get your fingers cut, Still, it's going to get you out, keep you afloat, you get hold of it. And that sense of that, uh, you know, what we're really trying to bring around is asawa. It's not sensuality, it's not senses themselves, it's a little bit eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and so forth, but they're kind of being glued to it, like a kid with his nose stuck on the shop window, you know. Get back. Summoner's place, a cultivator's place is back from that. They look on, they don't look in. Mm. They look on, they don't look in. Mm. Bawasawa, the asava, the outflow of becoming, being. It's not even easy to get a render it in English. What's that mean? Yeah. It is to do with identity and continuity of identity. You know, I will be, I was, I am, I will be. It's kind of, and uh, when you just think about it, consider it, 
what what you were is really just a series of memories, isn't it? What you will be is an unknown. What you are is questionable. <laughs> and yet there's so this is kind of like it's all resting on very flaky data, and yet there's this grip that pulls it together into I am and I will be I never will be and I can't be and I must be and I'm going to be yeah yeah and this kind of searching for personal fulfillment this is so uh, ingrained to even challenge it sounds weird surely we want personal fulfillment that's the aim of our life isn't it or not quite it's a fulfillment of the citta of heart of awareness but that's uh, not an identity you see the results of people's you know, craving for identity the power mongering people want power obsessed with power to become somebody special important with power you know the hideous cruelty manipulations lies and deceit bullying domineering that goes into that to be famous to be the best the pressure to achieve to become something you know, athletes or celebrities you know the pressure on the and many of them just crack up or have to take all kinds of medications that like legal or illegal just to try to level it out this is the extreme examples but uh, the average person doesn't even consider there's something other than becoming somebody a known entity that's but it's not about obliterating oneself it's about Witnessing the person, witnessing the personality and its issues and its stuff with a mind of compassion, but not buying into it. And I mean, the chitta then is free from the burden of success and failure, praise and blame, the burden of how what other people think of me. The burden of significance and insignificance. Release from that, it's open. And the beauty of these uh, releases is that the jitta opens into something actually <laughs> extremely um, bright and uh, agile. Strong, joyful, not carrying unnecessary weight. So the irony is, the poor child, you know, it's sort of insignificant village boy, sort of stuck out in the rural outbacks of northeast Thailand, you know, going forth to become. A, even less significant, <laughs> you know, wandering solitary 
too long monk, just about getting enough to survive on. Nobody knew, nobody, no connections. And just, just uh, developing the Dhamma Parami that people get interested in to the point to which all these people come clustering round and he becomes a kind of celebrity. <laughs> well, at the same time, not, not, you're not performing, you're not putting on airs or acts or claiming anything. The non-performance, that's just the direct truthfulness and honesty and not performing, not caring whether you particularly liked him or didn't like him. Yeah. And the power of that freedom, attracting people till you become someone extremely uh, <laughs> renowned. It's ironical, isn't it? But it wasn't really the person, it was the, the Dhamma manifesting in Lumpur Cha, which is the way it should be, the way he wanted. You don't have to make something out of your karmic history, its urges and drives and foibles and failings and quirks and you just <laughs> unless you put pressure on it the quieter it gets and these things just subside because your jitta is turning away turning back avijasava the asava of ignorance and this is the you know the parent of the other two really because this is the the outflow into the chitta's own creations, the chitta hearts, it stirs, it starts to proliferate, it starts to throw out impressions and imaginations and search for contact and worry about this and remember that. It sort of throws out this world, this psychological, emotional world, it, it produces it. And producing it, it then goes into it and starts trying to arrange it. <laughs> and the more it does that, the bigger that world gets. And the more energy it puts into trying to create that world into somewhere quiet and peaceful and steady. And so, it, and it, so as it's doing that, it's not possible because what it's doing is it's trying to make a permanent reality out of what is purely its own transient creations. Can't do it. But it, it, it keeps doing it. This is a Ouija, ignorance. <laughs> so it's always tumbling over you know, into its own creations. And as it tumbles, oh, I didn't get that right, it creates another load of creations to hold on to and tumbles into them. So it's like, like tumbleweed rolling across a prairie, blowing away, but with its own kind of wind inside it, blowing it on. This is the, the breathe, the outflow of ignorance. You know, our minds just generate so much stuff. You know, even when you're looking into meditation and Buddha Dhamma practice, you think, okay, well, just kind of 
just calm the mind in an appropriate way, steadily, you know, breathing and breathing out, listening. Maybe we thought, what technique, how long for, perhaps I should do this, this is the right place, perhaps Zolchen's better, maybe a little bit of straight samatha, or this technique, no, no, just, just sit quietly and make yourself comfortable. Yeah, but then I've got to figure that, let's try how to deal with this, how much metta should I use, or is it better to be cultivate the Brahma-viharas first, and just, just sort of sit quietly and make yourself comfortable and just steady. Yeah, but maybe I should do <laughs> So it goes, you know. And you get a whole kind of world of Buddhist stuff starts ballooning out. <laughs> but then, you know, the Wajab, the forest monks particularly, and him particularly towards zilch, zero technique. <laughs> you know, just always pruning it back, pruning it back, pruning it back, pruning it back. Just, do you know you're suffering? Stop. Well, do you know why you're suffering? Yeah. Can you see it? Do you want to keep doing it? Or do you want to cut it off? <laughs> you know? And just constantly this kind of inquiry and analysis into the energies that are so compulsive, so normal. We've been doing it for lifetimes. Generating a world. And then running into it. Arranging the furniture on a world that is purely mind-created. And then polishing the furniture and then so on and so on and so on. And it's always falling apart. The point buying more furniture. It's just drawing back. So very, you know, the it's kind of butto, walk up and do it a lot. Do it a lot, do it a lot, do it a lot. And why, you know, these, one of the primary skills that the Buddha taught in dealing with the asava is the cultivation of sangwara, or restraint. It's something like collecting. As the mind spins out and runs out, you draw it back. As it dissipates its energies into the probable and the possible and what she thinks, and I don't see why she doesn't bother, just pull it back. As it runs out into planning the future, just gather it back in again. What are you doing? What's the feeling? What's the agitation? What's the irritation? It's all resting, all the world is resting on very simple human uh, emotions and energies, defensiveness, fear, anxiety, irritation, gratification, loneliness. Just pull it back. Here you are. Get comfortable. Sit steady. Be where you are. But I don't know. They're restraining. And because uh, these asa are so powerful and so inculcated, so deeply embedded, and so it's, it's, a, it's a whole life practice just in that alone. Mm. And certainly one would say that Nampur Chardel lived with considerable 
restraint over the senses. Guarding it. And the different you know, requisites live very modestly, personally, extremely modestly. Kuti is just the place with almost nothing in it. Place to lie down and talk to people. Almost no furnishing. And but when you met Lampoja, you met someone who seemed really full and happy, humorous, deep, uh, at ease. As a living example, this is what it, this is what it does. If you do it right, this is what it does. It make you hard, tight, repressed, you know, judgmental, you know, narrow-minded, makes you broad, vast, deep, peaceful. That's the restraint of the asava. There it is. <laughs> and you see that happening time and time again in different situations. He's not going out. He's not going out to please people. He's not going out to, you know, make things happen. He's not going out. He doesn't go out. Holds himself. Jitta is sitting on its own basis instead of rolling out. This restraint, and because it's uh, such an important feature of uh, training, to train is to restrain the asava, and then recognize in that you're going to develop all kinds of parami, strengths, virtues, skills that will then blossom. And even more than that, the chitta will return to its basis, which is open, empty still free from condition. Mm. You know, sometimes restraint is seen in terms of restraint on livelihood, one of light livelihood, not endlessly busy working, building things up, and dealing with the compulsion to get things done. So in the monasteries you all recognise that there's always more, you know, we've got like 170 acres of land to try and manage. You can't do it. But you don't, uh, you don't get into frantically busy, but also you don't give up on it. You restrain the, either the, the uh, obsessive work, also you restrain the sense of ineptitude, just get on with what you can do, get on with what you can do, not because you'll get it done, but because you're cultivating a particular willingness and skill and good karma. It's not about getting things done, it's about just getting good karma in a, in a comfortable, quiet, communal way. And work never ends, never gets done, but everything's fine. Because once you've let go of that pressure, you know, you, you, your mind is awake and alert. You see what you can do. You can do it. 
And the standards are not sky high. Modest lifestyle. Clean, tidy. Just keep things clean, tidy, well arranged. So that people can come and enjoy the facilities. It's not just for ourselves, it's also people from outside can come. Made a special effort even during this time, as soon as we could, to get the place open so people can come and sit here, feel comfortable quiet way. That's our service, that's our offering, basic offering, good karma. That's our good karma. Restraint in terms of what you're doing, restraint in terms of um, requisites, really looking into sort of, you know, the obvious ones of food, Every now and then, yeah, generally has to say, breakfast is getting a little bit high, let's just take it down again. <laughs> so people start to love to add new delights, you know, because they feel, particularly people get very warm and, and they try to give you all kinds of nice stuff to eat. They just, 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 just enough, that's enough, enough, enough. It's a great word, enough. <laughs> Keep your eye on it. Requisites and restraint according to the party moko, which in a way covers a lot of this because if you the training rules themselves, even though many of them are archaic and out of date, the basic principles of frugality and simplicity and and even more important than the Patimokha is a sense of communality. As most of the rules are created so that people could live more harmoniously. The monks with each other, the monks with the nuns, the summoners with the lay people. A lot of the training rules are made because the lay, lay people found it more suitable what would, be, what would work best? We're living dependent on arms. So we try to fit in. And the reasons why the Buddha laid down all these, made all these rulings, he said, well, part of it's for comfort of well-trained people, to ward off evil factions, to um, inspire people, and to make those who are inspired to sustain their faith, and to ward off the asava in the present and to check they don't arise in the future for the welfare of the vinya and the strength of the sasana and the sangha. So when you train in patimokha, you have this kind of way of considering things. It's not just about being in a monastery. Monasteries are great workshops for that. You know, it's a workshop where you really try to be reminded of it, time to get that sense. How do my actions affect the other members of the community? How do they affect the lay people? Does this gladden them, inspire them? Does it give good standard? Does it bring out their wholesome instincts or their heedless instincts? Yeah, so it's not like we're just going along with everything that every person in the street wants to be 
just conforming to people, but to that which is bright, earnest, sincere, in lay disciple that we listen to. And, okay. and this way, this mutuality of concern, means you can take that with you wherever you go. Different monasteries often have slightly different standards around this and that and the other. But they should, they should all have restraint <laughs> as a fundamental standard. <laughs> and living in accordance with the community and the, for the welfare of the sasana, the sangha, the vinaya, and the ending of the asava. Otherwise, no point having a monastery. It's only for that, really. Yeah, so, of course, Lumpur Chow is very assiduous and uh, astute, both in terms of the letter of the training and also the spirit. He studied the training manuals in great detail when he was a young monk. He tried to distill the meaning through all his small bits and pieces. And then essentially getting the spirit and digesting it and then laying out training for community, which was his very striking features. His practice style was very community-based. There's other, as you have to be more solitary basis, his was community basis, which I think fits in to, in my opinion, to you know, what the Buddha was establishing the Patimoka for, so for the fourfold assembly, they call it. Laymen, laywomen, nuns, monks. So it's very much considering the whole of that. And so his training standards were around that. He always like, how do you serve the community, help the community? And it's where you begin to let go of your personal becoming, personal identity issues, what you want to be and what you don't want to be. What you think you are and what you think you're not. Forget about it. Don't get into that. Just use the community as a place where you're just that part of the of the, of the community. You're know, doing this now. Now you're asked to do this. You do this. You know, you, you kind of get out of being so obsessive about one's self, one's skills, one's lack of them. And learn. Um, because we're not looking to be great at doing in things, just learning to be willing and uh, have the right view. And so let's take some of this edge off of being a role as a, you know, as an abbot or a guest nun or a. Yeah, but don't make an issue out of it. Use it as a practice, but don't don't let the answer of becoming get into that and start judging you about how good you are. <laughs> Which is what it does. It certainly did for me. You know, you're not as good as so-and-so. You don't do it like Lumpur Samedo does. You've got to, it should be like this. You're not like, you know shouldn't let this happen, you should let that happen. Everybody telling you what you should be and what you shouldn't be and what you're not and what you are. And 
just, uh, it's just, <laughs> it's to put all that down and try to practice directly what's happening. Can we cooperate? <laughs> Did I say I'm going to fix everything, make everything work, make you all happy? Nope. But having been asked to do something, okay, I'll give it a go. That's the spirit. And so you know, you're not using these forms as, as kind of identity experiences. I don't think people do it to become, uh, you know, out of pride. But there can be certainly a lot of anxiety involved in having a position in the sangha, feeling you're not good enough or somebody else is better at it than you are, or, you know, just, and you'll restrain that. And it, and then, so all these things really point back to the fundamental restraint, which is restraint of the indriya, which is sense basis, eye, ear, nose, tongue, you know, it goes out to food and sights and sounds, body, when it goes out to physical touch and cold and heat and so forth. But even more important, the mind restraining the manindriya, the measuring, organizing, manipulating, conceiving, planning, opinionating, judging, mind. Yeah. Don't check it, pulling it back, pulling it back. Basic and yet ongoing. The eyes close, the mind never closes. The ears quiet down, the mind never closes. You've got to pull it back, settle it down, get it to relax. Average person doesn't have a clue about, doesn't think such a thing could happen. Inconceivable, unless you're dead or having a heart attack or something. I think my first time my mind stopped at all was about 19 years old. I was doing some, doing some yoga. My mind just stopped thinking. It wasn't just, not just thinking, but that kind of prepare to think, that organizing, figuring energy stopped. What's that? I never realised they could do that. <laughs> I think most people don't imagine that's possible. Or even certainly not desirable. Must be dead. No, no, it's really nice. Well that noise goes down as a big open, attentive, alert, quiet, unhurried, peaceful. And all that muttering and measuring and edging and creating boundaries around things, all that quiets down. And so all our training really comes back to this. For our own welfare and of course the welfare of others. If my mind is running out, spinning on this, that and the other, I'm going to start passing it on to everyone else. Anybody else gets excited and agitated and 
opinionating, chatting all the time. And he's like this and she's like that. And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Just stop doing that. Stop gossiping and chit-chatting. Just don't need to do that. We get so used to it as if it's a sort of, you know, necessity for human warmth, or human contact, even to, you know, no, just try steadying it, develop quality of goodwill, kindness, generosity, and using your, your body and your actions to speak really helps. It's too much mental energy coming out through speaking, talking. It stirs everybody up. And then you start to get people say things they shouldn't have said, a bit silly, you know, didn't really mean it, but it's kind of being slightly offhand and oh good and then that gets passed on, somebody else says talks about it or oh dear <laughs> Tilly communities, you know, the Chinese whispers thing goes and the old gossiping grapevine goes chatting about somebody or this, that and the other, what they did or what they didn't do. And, 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 uh, and it's, it's just sort of, it, it's, it's not malevolent. It's just this asava rolling on, tumbling. Uh, it's not something to be judgmental about. It's not something to, you know, get nasty and judgmental. But just, just please, it's okay. Right? Let's just take it, take it. We can operate another pitch. And learning that because these things take time. So it really has to also be restrained in terms of one's ideals. You know, we get great ideas how I'm going to sit like a rock and be quiet, happy as a clam and shut up and be totally serious and straight and play exactly right. Well, let's see. <laughs> you know, even the idealism, you've got to just body, as Ajahn Charles' expression, good enough. Good enough. What's good enough? Good enough is... Good enough. <laughs> enough. Yeah. Because you can get this kind of the outflow becoming, yeah. I get these great ideas what we're going to do. Just notice it. So once you've begun to cultivate, you know, sense restraint and living in a community. Where suddenly, the, I mean, the great thing about it is you just can't, well, you shouldn't, impulsively just go ahead and do something. There's always got to be some sort of check you either create in your own mind by saying, uh, is it okay if I do this, or I mention it to you, or the work moment, just let you know. So there's some sort of thing we check. So I'm not just, boom, doing my own thing, because I'm in community. And I, I create that. Try it myself. You know? 
So now try to live within that. Just let somebody else know, check with the Abba. It's not like, you know, please sir, may I just letting you know and give me some, is that okay? How is it? I can't see. I want to cultivate that sense of not just having my impulse run out without any reference. Yeah. And you cultivate it like that. And it's that kind of supervision of the will of impulse energy. You're doing that in community because that, when you come down to it, that's about it, really. Supervising jitana, volition, whether it's volition towards food, towards getting away, towards mental proliferation, just supervising it. Because it's happening all the time. This is karma. And that's the... That's the message. Remember, that chitana, that volition, that wheel running, that impulse, that's karma. That means there's going to be a result. That means the more you follow it, the more you're going to get embedded in that pattern. And that pattern will define, limit, constrict you. Right? You know, it's, it's a, like I said, sangsara is something you should be frightened of. You know, I, don't want to, I don't want to be that. You know? So you check, 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 check. Keep your eyes open about the impulses. So, you know, with certainly the Lumpur Cha, you know. Authoritarian. So you couldn't do anything really without. And often frustrating people. Of course, you know, you developed over the years, you refined it, because you also recognize that people sometimes get their. You know, say the example was he gave you got you know a drunk walking along the road and he's so drunk he keeps falling into the ditch on the left. So you say, Oh look, head right, lean right, lean right. And drunk walking along the road falls in the ditch on the right, say, Lean left, lean left. Say, Well your teaching is contradictory. <laughs> sometimes you say I should relax, sometimes you say I should push harder. Why is your teaching contradictory? Because your mind's contradictory. <laughs> some things you're too gung ho on, and some things you're slack on. So you supervise volition. Sometimes it's just dragging your heels. Oh, I can't. I can't be bothered. Push up. Come on. Yeah, and then sometimes it's. Oh, I've got to get this done. No, slow down. Relax. <laughs> So using this kind of training situation to just keep adjusting till you get really attuned to that, what an outflow feels like. It's kind of woof, moving up and almost the compulsive, compulsive driven quality to it. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta have, I gotta have, I can't stand, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I can't, I can't, I can't. They do, they do. 
you know, the real and solid world we create around us. She is, she is, she is, she's always, she never will be. Whoa, that one, how did that one come up? You know, we created a solid world of people. That's, what does that in a flat, in a wink of an eye, that's called asawa. It creates a world of space full of people and history and things. It creates a world of time. And those things are so solid, we get squeezed into that press. And we, and we totally believe it. You feel what it feels like. A narrow, pushed. And then you just got to keep finding the here within that. You know, like little poor Samedo, just teaching, it's very simple, time and time again, just coming back to now, here, knowing, like this. Don't run out. Don't be frightened. Don't be embarrassed. Don't start judging yourself. Don't bother. Just return. You pull out the arse of a fade. It's like an incredible conjuring trick. You tangle with them, they get solid. You withdraw, they dissolve like mist. Till the next time. You get a feel for it. And then you then you've got an incredible key for practice. Because in a way, whatever anyone else does for you, however skilled a teacher is or situation is, they can just do workshops for you. But you have the intimate, unique view of your stuff. Of where you get thrown forward, of the self you create, of the world you create around you, of the future and the past, the becoming, of what you tumble into compulsively, of what you feel you absolutely must and never can be. That's Asawa. And it will carry a good lot of convincing thought. It will assemble an amazing array of statistics to prove it. And it will make you suffer. (laughs) Of this there is no doubt. So, you know, notice what's happening. Driven state, and then can we return? Hmm? And the gift, of course, of the, the teacher and the training is they um, that generates the kind of restraint for us that gives us a glimpse of what it's like that we to just have one's world stopped one's time stopped one's identity I am like this I'm never like that I'm always this I give that Stop. You know it can stop. 
you know, you can see those wonderful marmalade, chocolate clairs that surely the lay people want you to eat. It's for your welfare and it's a generosity. And they say, no, we won't have that for breakfast. Take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Drop. Life goes on. Here we are. So particularly with this one, the requisites, you know, you see that you see, I was okay before they produced all this stuff. They produced all this stuff. I started to get craving for, but I was I was okay. And then his cake arrived, <laughs> and I've got to have it. If it hadn't arrived, I wouldn't have had to have it. But it arrived, so I have to have it and take it away. Oh. You train yourself like that. Like if it wasn't if it hadn't been here you wouldn't crave it. You couldn't right. And notice when you do the the, the the quality of craving. You know, you you can only crave it as long as you don't have it. Once you've got it you can't crave it. When you don't crave it, it's no longer exciting. So you can crave something else. So that's it, rolls on, rolls on, rolls on. You can take that everything from a cake to a trip. You know, I was I wanted to do this, I wanted to sorry, COVID can't do it. Okay. Right. I never was there, it was just an idea. Hmm. There we are. Same place as usual. Return to the basis. Things arise like this. Getting used to that, and uh, you know, looking into it. So this is really like also a change of view, because the, uh, the untrained, unawakened person, you know, believes in the world of space and time. So much so they think, what are you talking about? Of course there's a world of space and time. Of course there's a world of space and time. There's Germany, there's Italy, there's 1994, there's 2012. Of course there's space and time. I don't... No, no, no. They're created by, in your mind... They're memories, they're, they're measurements, aren't they? Say this, how big is the hall? Well, it's 25 metres long or something. That's an idea. Actually, how big is the hall? Is It's as big as my eyes can see. So I'm looking like that, it's this big. If I look down the floor, it's much smaller. I move around in it, it's as big as my footprint. The rest of it's mind made.
Which says sounds like silly exercise. But in terms of liberation, this is the kind of way you start to recondition the thinking mind, which is your most powerfully stimulated, us of a ridden faculty. It's designed to flow out. It's geared to it. It's been encouraged to do it. It's been encouraged to do it. Educated to do it. You know? so how old are you? Oh, I'm 55. I'm 26. I'm 70. I'm 43. What's 43? What are you talking about? Your name is 43, that's all. When you change your name, it's not even that old, but all the cells of your body have been regenerated. You know, just the concept is 43, or 26, or 70. See what I mean? And so, this isn't just kind of playing with words, but then it means you, once you dissolve that, you think, what am I talking about, 70 years old? What's 70 years old? Then there's something that isn't 70 years old, not any age. Once you disengage from that, and all the, well, you know, I'm getting on a bit, and I don't know, I might not live much longer, and, you know, I'm a bit of an old guy now, and uh, I've done 10 years, maybe, 15 years, you know, I'm going to think about my will, or maybe. Maybe, but what are you talking about? What's the reality of that? Feeling, perception, impressions, energies. What kind of an identity is that? What kind of a fixed entity is that? And can you? See that as that. Once you break it up into these different aggregates, you see there's there's the knowing of that. That's no age, no space. It's not like it lives in Italy or West Sussex. It's of another dimension. And it's the dimension non-suffering, no stress. No movement in time, no failure, no success, no about to be, no should be, no regret, no craving, no fear, no death. What dies? What's that? So this is really worth um, looking at some of these assumptions because the asava, they don't jump up. If they, they move over, you like, they sweep over you without you really even knowing it. You're in. You're in there.
ducking, weaving, fencing, building, planning, rushing out, you're in there. And it's, everybody else is in there doing stuff. Stuff's happening. And you're in this incredible, endless, endless dream with no conclusion. And just dealing with the details. Now, this is why we need this restraint. How we live, how we speak, how we conceive. and how we help each other to you know release into something that's gentle steady calming praiseworthy wise a source of blessings and comfort for many folk a source of sustaining the Buddha's message for the welfare of future generations in restraining the asava. And this is not just a theory. You see what this village boy from Bangor did in his life. So there's hundreds of monasteries, thousands of people taking sustenance and strength and practical guidance from this very direct approach to restrain the source of suffering so we can dwell in the treasure. So, offer this for your consideration this evening. Mm.